This morning, continuing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the law not abolished, fulfilled. This is part two. Let's just catch up really fast. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is proclaiming for the first time to the masses the radical message of the gospel of the kingdom, the, the good news of the kingdom and its king. The news that the king reigns, and that reign is being manifest in his people. It is a testimony of hope that will bring both salvation and persecution. This is not a how-to class on to lead a blessed life. This is the description of what the life that is blessed looks like, and it is not what people expect it to be. It is a message that is going to turn the world literally on its head. He doesn't say, blessed are the rich in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor doesn't say, blessed are the prosperous. He says, blessed are the persecuted. He doesn't say, blessed are those that celebrate, but blessed are those that mourn. He talks about some very heavy things. You are the salt of the earth, the very thing that is preserving this world until the appointed day of judgment, and you are the light of the world. The means by which the life of Jesus Christ himself is being shown and projected into the world in a manner that human beings can actually receive it and agree with God that indeed he is excellent and he is worthy of our repentance. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of little girls and little boys and men and women running to him such a radical message that it will often be misunderstood as either a license for sin, which it absolutely isn't, or failure of God's previous commands, and by extension, failure of the promises that are yet to be filled, neither one of which is true. The prophet Malachi wrote in chapter 6, or chapter 3 and verse 6, quoting the Lord, For I, the Lord, do not change. And therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's a radical message. It would be misunderstood in its day. It would be misunderstood throughout the centuries and even the millennium. It's often misunderstood today. It will become a persistent heresy throughout generations in the midst of the people of God. John was fighting it in his first epistle 60-some-odd years later. And here at the very beginning of his ministry, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus meets it head on. Where in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Immediately, Jesus makes his intention with the law clear. He says his intention is not to abolish it's not to tear down, it's not to destroy the law, but at the same time, neither is his intention to build up the law or to expand it. Instead, Christ comes to fulfill the law, to fill it to its capacity, to its intended point of completion, and in turn, producing satisfaction. Both the satisfaction of God and the satisfaction of men. For when you're dying of thirst, or I guess with men's case, when you're dead of thirst, there is nothing better than a full cup. Christ came to do what man could not do. He came to make the law be as glorious and as good as it could possibly be. He came to fill it up. He came to bring it to its completion. And he did so because of what the law is. 
The law is not simply commands. It is not simply statutes, do this, don't do that. As a matter of fact, we saw last week that even in simple things that Jesus is saying early in his ministry, we can tell that there is more depth to the law than simply do and don't. Jesus will say that the law requires faith. Paul will expound upon this in his epistles, particularly in the book of Romans. Paul will say that we do not abolish the law by faith, but instead fulfill it. The law has to do with desire and love, both for God and for men. We see its depth hinted to in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40, where Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What a mouthful. All the law and the prophets in Jesus' day would have been everything from Genesis to Malachi. And he says all of this hangs on these two concepts. That on all the law and the prophets depend Love for God and love for your neighbor. There's more to the law than do's and don'ts. Instead, the law is a spiritual reality. Oh, it exists in the natural world. Spoken so that men could hear. Carved on tablets of stone. Written by hand on parchment. After Gutenberg, printed by presses. On pulp paper. It exists. It's real. You can read it. You can hear it. You can see it on the screen. But the reality is that the law is at its very base and substance spiritual and not natural. In Romans chapter 7 and verses 9 through 14. And Paul's saying a lot here. But I want to, I want to focus on what he's saying about the spiritual nature of the law. In verse 9, Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No, me, by no means. Not being. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, if Paul just said that the law is spiritual alone, that would be sufficient. But he draws this contrast between the spiritual nature of the law and the natural, the fleshly nature, the sinful nature of himself as a man. One of these things leads to life. The other leads to death. The law is not defined, according to Scripture, by a commandment written in ink or chiseled in stone or spoken so that your ear may hear. As a matter of fact, when Paul is speaking about Jesus' work, the, the fulfiller of the law, 
when he's speaking about the fulfiller of the law's work in the saints in Corinth, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, and says to them this, it's not about the physical nature of the law, it's the spiritual nature. He says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Oh, the law is a physical reality. There is no doubt about it. But that's not its nature. By nature, the law is spiritual. The law contains commands. But it doesn't contain commands because it's spiritual. According to what Paul says, it contains commands because men are not. And so today... I want to consider in a little more depth the spiritual nature of the law. Now, the apostles have a lot to say about it, and Paul does in particular. And we've already seen here, just to kind of rewind for just a second, we've seen that, that the law contains the promise of life. It contains the revealing of sin through death. It is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. And that right there, I'll tell you a lot, because Jesus himself says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. And so here's the law. Man, it's the promise of life. It shows you sin and death. That alone would be heavy enough, but not only that, it is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. If you want to know the weight of, of the fact that the law is spiritual first and physical second. It is in the fact that Paul tells us that the law of God is still functioning even when there is no physical commandment. Look with me, if you will, a couple pages back in Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 14. And Paul is expounding about the way that sin has come into the world and then he's going to... to to leapfrog from there and talk about the way that grace has come into the world. But first he's talking about the way that sin has come into the world. And, and he's going to make this statement just a couple chapters later. Look, guys, the law is primarily foundationally. It is not a natural phenomenon. It is not a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. When talking about sin and death and the commandment, Paul highlights the spiritual nature of the law by showing us that that reality is functioning even when there's no command given. And so here in, in verse 12 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. And yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. And so if you understand what Paul is saying here, and we're just going to go straight at it this morning because we don't have a lot of time to develop here. If you're just going to go straight at it, you need to understand that there is a difference in Scripture between the concept of sin and the concept of transgression. They are closely related, but they are not exactly the same thing. 
And so sin would define as anything that is contrary to the character of God. When you look at God and you say, this is who God is, and here's Jesus Christ as the light of the world, causing his people to be the light of the world, shining into the creation information about all the excellencies of who God is so that men can look and agree and go, yes, that is excellent and that is awesome. Then when you see that, sin is anything else that's not that. That's what sin is. Anything that's not him. Transgression is a bit more ticky-tacky. It's a little bit more legalese, if you will. Transgression is when you have a stated rule or command and then you break that. In the law, it doesn't say that the wages of transgression is death. As a matter of fact, there were all sorts of wages for transgression under the law that had much uh, easier outcomes. <laughs> the wages of sin is what is death. And here you see it on display in Adam and those that come after him. Adam had a law. God gave Adam his law, at which point there was the opportunity to either transgress or not to transgress. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord takes part of his character and says, Because of my character, it is not good for you to know sin. It is not good for you to know that which is apart from me. You shall know me and me alone. Therefore, don't do this. And he takes that piece of his character that defines sin and he ties it to a commandment that informs Adam in such a way he understands who the person of God is in this particular matter and there is an opportunity for the first time to transgress. And Adam does. God says the transgression of this is equated to sin, and sin equals death, and Adam dies. What's crazy is the people that come immediately after him. Scripture tells us that from Adam onward, there will be no more corporate law until Moses. You see specific commands to individual men. You see specific promises to men and what will come out of that promise and out of their family later, but there is no more corporate law. There is no more spoken command until Moses. And yet, these men who have no rule to transgress are dropping like flies. Every one of them is coming to the end of all men. And then one day at the flood, they come to that end millions upon millions, even though there was no rule to break, no law to transgress. But once again in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted, it's not enumerated, where there is no law, and yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
And so while the law says the sinner dies, there was no command for these men to break. There was nothing specific that they could do and go, okay, I broke the law of God, and now my life is forfeit, but because the law is a spiritual reality and not just something that's written on a piece of paper, they died anyway. Such is the nature of sin. It kills even if there is no one there to tell you it will. I mean, good grief, how many laws among men have been enacted because there was no law and somebody died? And then they said, we got to have a law about that. They're typically named after someone. Unfortunately, often small children. But the fact is, is sin brings death even if there's no statute, even if there's no physical command. Because the law of God, first and foremost, is a spiritual reality. And so, I think we have to ask this question. And this is really the question I want to ask this morning. What is the spiritual reality of the law? I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, it's not just tablets of stone. It's something written on the tablets of your heart. It exists even if it hasn't been spoken into the creation, it's something bigger than this creation. It was there before this creation. And so it's real and it's functioning and it's working, even if men are ignorant of it. It's one thing to say that. Go, okay, man, the law of God is, is not, you know, flip back to, to whatever page you find Exodus chapter 20 on in your Bible and, you know, read the Ten Commandments in English off the page. Nor is it, you know... Nor, nor is it rolled up on some, some piece of parchment, you know, preserved out in a desert cave somewhere. Nor, if you could find the actual Ark of the Covenant, can, can you say that the law of God is on the tablets? It's something bigger than that. Fair enough. But what is it? What is it? Isaiah chapter 42. In the book of Isaiah in chapter 42 and... I think we've got just a little maybe extra time this morning. So I, I want to, if I can, I want to give you some context. Because, man, <laughs> the, way that, the way that Christ and the law play off each other is incredibly, incredibly glorious. And so I want you to notice the context of Isaiah 42. Let's start in verse 1. I know we've got 18 through 21 up here. But let's start in verse 1. Because I want you to see who he's talking about first. Because the first one he's talking about is Jesus Christ who came to fulfill the law. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness. If you go, man, this kind of sounds like Jesus to me. It's because Isaiah chapter 42 is hugely quoted in the New Testament saying, this is Jesus. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. 
I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. And before they spring forth, they spring forth. I tell you of them. He's speaking about the one that comes to fulfill the law. A fulfillment that is apparently so exciting that the coastlands don't dread the coming of this law, but they are excited about it. Now let's go down the page to verse 18 through 21 and see what it is. What is the spiritual nature? What is this thing that exists apart from the creation that is the law of God? Verse 18, he's no longer speaking about Christ. He's speaking to Israel concerning their rebellion. And he says, hear you deaf. And look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Man, this is a apt description of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day that were always quoting the law to him in a way that was not lawful. It is the type of people that Paul speaks about when he says they are constantly learning, constantly searching, but never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. Man, they see many things, but they don't observe. They hear, but they don't understand. Their ears are open, but he does not hear. And then he says this in verse 21. The Lord was pleased. The Lord was pleased to magnify his law and make it glorious. Fair enough. God has a law. He wants to magnify that. I hope after the last month or so that we're that we're pretty in tune with what the idea of glory in Scripture is. We've already talked about it once again this morning. That it is it is the the shining forth of information about someone or something, in this case God himself and his law. It is the shining forth of that information so that it can be received and understood and we can come to agree that it is excellent. And so here's the law of God and it says it pleases the Lord to magnify it that it may be glorious. But there's a little clause in there that tells you why That pleases him. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify, to show you the law, and to make it glorious so you can go, yes, that's excellent. The spiritual reality of the law is this the law is the righteousness of God glorified. It pleased him for his own righteousness sake to show this to you. 
The law is the light righteousness of God glorified, shown, and communicated into the creation that we may see the excellence of his righteousness. In other words, it is the spiritual being translated, being shown into the natural. It is the eternal into the temporal, the infinite into the finite, and the celestial into the terrestrial. It is something altogether different. The righteousness of an eternal God being magnified and glorified into a temporal creation. A spiritual reality being seen in natural form, but still functioning spiritually. There is only one thing else that I can think of in all of Scripture that functions that way. And it is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You cannot separate the law and the fulfiller thereof. They come hand in hand together in the gospel. And what was God's intent? If this is what the nature of the law is, we go, okay, the law is spiritual. What does that mean? Well, here's how it's spiritual. It is his righteousness being shown into the world. This is why when you go to the Ten Commandments, what is the very first thing you get? The very first thing you get is not don't murder. It's not don't lie. It's not don't commit adultery. It's have no other gods before me. Why? Because that is the law. Jesus said so. All your heart, mind, body, soul. This is the first greatest commandment. Second was like it. Love your neighbors yourself. On this, all of the law and prophets hang. The first thing he says is, look, it's me, it's all me. It's always been me, it's always going to be me, it's me. And I'm showing you all of the rest of this. So I'm condescending to speak to you so you can understand what the excellencies of my righteousness is. That's what it is. Now what's his intention? His intention is relational. He did it so that he could have a relationship with his people. Though it may not be as straight as a line as one might expect. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 8. See, now we've got to move because I always think I have more time than I do. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Moses speaking to Israel right at the end of his life about all the events that have happened to them from the Exodus thus far and the amazing thing that the Lord has done in giving them his law. And he says this, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. The statutes and rules, this spiritual reality that is now coming to the physical world. Do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen that the, all the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. And I, <clears throat> but... You who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught taught you 
statutes and rules. Physical earthly commands. They are the manifestation of a spiritual reality that is the righteousness of God on display. I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Moses starts hitting hinting at something. He's going to hit the nail right on the head here in a minute. He says, look, make sure you do this. Remember, this is the righteousness of God, which is the standard of sin, which means life and death is involved. Now you have a statute, so you know what that is. You are not ignorant, man. For righteousness' sake, this has been magnified and glorified unto you. You know what it is. And remember what happened at Peor. When those that were not faithful went after others and perished because of it, don't do that. Remember the covenant. And when you do, people around you are going to start looking and going, man, what is up with these people? This is wild stuff. What nation has a God? that answers when his people call. What nation has a God like this? That we're going to later see with Elisha on on Mount Carmel when all the rest of them are running around begging their demon gods and cutting themselves all day long. And the prophet just looks up and says, Lord, so that they may believe. And bam! Who's like this? This is wisdom to you. Moses is going to take it a step further. Look down the page just a little bit, just for time's sake. Verse 32 For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing has ever happened or is ever even heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, There is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. You heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers. Now this is getting wild, man. He says, no other God has done this. No other God has done these miraculous works, great and terrible, on another's behalf. No other has said, man, I'm going to take this nation and I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to make them my own and I'm going to become wisdom to them and my own righteousness. This has never happened before. He spoke from heaven, let you hear his own voice and you lived. Never happened before. And then this mind-boggling piece of information Why would a God do such a thing? 
because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his own power, driving out nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart. The Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other. Keep his statutes and commandments. The Lord gave you this law to bring about a relationship that had never existed between God and any other nation. The intent of God with his law, the intent of shining his righteous standard into the creation is in order that he may build a relationship specifically through the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what he wanted. Because he loved their fathers and he chose them and he set them apart. He made them his treasured possession, it says elsewhere. This is what he was after. He was after a relationship. And this is the part where you've got to start paying attention to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 very closely. Because historically... Many have looked at what radical things that Christ was saying and said, this marks the failure of the law that came before. And by extension, all the promises that came with it. People will say, well, if it was his intent to build a relationship with Israel and giving them the law, a relationship that would eventually spread across the whole face of the earth, then it seems like he failed. All you have to do is read the Old Testament and then look at the history of Israel since then. It seems that the law has failed in its intent, and that's because we have a very poor understanding of the function of the law. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to add to it. He didn't come to take away from it. He came to satisfy it. You see, when you consider the law, the problem with the dusty little thoughts of men is that we have a tendency to make, we're simplistic people, we make simplistic assumptions. And I'm talking to me more than I'm talking to you. And so we look at the law and we go, okay, God's intent in the law is to have a relationship with his people. And it's going to make them wiser than all the people around him. He's going to answer them in such a way that he doesn't answer the other people around him. This is going to be awesome. All they have to do is pay attention to the righteousness that he has shown them and do that. And everything's going to be hunky-dory. And, of course, they don't. And then things go terribly wrong. You see, the problem with men is that we assume if the intention of the law is relationship, then it should yield that relationship directly and immediately. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes if I decide that there's something I really want, about the time I realize that I want it, I realize I actually wanted it a month ago. Right? We are very direct thinkers. Now, now, now. When the reality is this, the law functions... To bring about that relationship by first displaying the absolute desperation of mankind. And then to display the glory of Jesus Christ in supplying what the desperate men could not supply. As a matter of fact, look man, the reason the law, when you look at the law and you go, well if it was God's intent to get relationship, why didn't it work? It did work. 
it was not designed to bring the relationship directly. As a matter of fact, when it comes to relationship, the law and man are incompatible with each other, and that is true by design. It's not an accident. It's true by design. When speaking of one of the most critical components of the law, that being the Sabbath, in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28, Jesus makes a just draw-jopping statement about the relationship between law and men. And he says this, The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord over even the Sabbath. Now, we don't have time this morning, so I'm not going to do the background work. You can do it on your own time. Other than you shall have no other God before me, there is no other single command in all of the law that is held up as being encompassing of the entirety of the law the way the Sabbath is. As a matter of fact, it's one of those that the Lord said, if anyone doesn't keep this, you cut them off from the people of Israel. It's the promise of rest that's coming in Christ. So it's a real big deal. And Jesus says you need to understand something about the law of the Sabbath, and I believe in extension to the law in general. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The law was made for man. It was made to show man something. It was made, as he told Isaiah, for his righteousness' sake, to magnify and glorify it into the creation. The law was made for man, but man was not made for the law. The law is compatible with us to do what is required in us. We are not compatible with it. We're not. And if you don't believe it, just go try to fulfill it. Men were never made for the law. And so we cannot fulfill it because we weren't supposed to. Christ is the fullness of the law. He was the one designed, well, he wasn't designed. The law and him worked together like lock and key. Men weren't made for the law, but the law was made for men in a very specific way. It was made to show us what we are. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says it like this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You say, okay, pastor, men weren't made for the law. We can't fulfill the law. Christ fulfills the law. We were never supposed to. See, and that's why you think the law has failed. Because you think that the way this thing is going to produce the relationship that God intended is by us being able to do all the stuff it says to do. And the mind of God is just way bigger than that. So he goes, no, that's not how it works. What it was designed to do is specifically show you that you don't measure up. Paul says it. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law, here's what it's for, Here's how the law was made for you. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was there to show you you're a sinner. The law was there to show you that you'll never measure up. 
The law is there to magnify the righteousness of God in the midst of a generation, according to Isaiah chapter 42, that is deaf and blind. But the good news is this. This is why you don't get a lot of gospel talk with law. You get gospel talk with Jesus Christ. Because the problem for men not being compatible with the law, the problem that is set before them, is then answered in the good news of Jesus Christ. The law is the lock that bars you from God. Christ Jesus is the key. The law is the question and Christ is the answer. The law is the standard that Christ meets when you and I hopelessly cannot. And the law is absolute. You know, that's the thing that makes the law so intimidating. I mean, when you start, then you start digging along and go, hey man, okay, so the law... The intention is relationship, but that is not the component role that the law is playing. As a matter of fact, the law component role is being played to show you that there is no relationship other than one of wrath, which is going to push you in conviction to the place where there is relationship in peace. The law is absolute. It gets terrifying real quick. James writes in in his epistle in chapter 2 and verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Now, look, James doesn't even, I mean, like, he keeps it really simple. You know, he doesn't do any of the kind of, if you lust, you know, you've already committed adultery in your heart or, you know, he doesn't do anything like that. He just says, look, man, if, if, if you love your neighbor as yourself, that's great. But, but if you show partiality, you know, then, then you've already transgressed the law. Well, well, my goodness, friends, who's never showed partiality? Especially if the standard is loving others the way you love yourself. I show partiality to myself all the time. Don't you? I have to focus. I have a rule. She doesn't even know this, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I have a rule. I, uh, I do most of the cooking. Not on Sunday mornings. I do most of the cooking. And um, I have a rule that when I'm cooking, the prettiest plate, I don't mean the, I don't mean the, the actual plate, I mean, the prettiest plate of food, the most well-marbled steak, that over-easy egg that's cooked just right, she gets that one every time. And you know why I have that rule? Because I noticed immediately after we got married that without even thinking about it, I would find that one laying on my plate. Man, we show partiality all the time. All the time. And so James doesn't pick some big crazy sin that you can go, oh, well, that's not me. He says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted, convicted by the law as a transgressor for whoever keeps. You can't even argue ignorance. You knew the statute. It came into this world. The spiritual translated into the natural and you broke it. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails on one point has become accountable for the whole of it. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Basically what James is doing is he's reverse engineering the nature of the law. He says, because what this thing is, is simply the magnification of God's own character, and God is holy and completely set apart and perfect, then if you befoul any of it, it is no longer worthy of his character. Fail one, fail all. A single source yields an absolute standard. Friends, that is a terrifying thing. That is a terrifying thing. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that will make you just throw up your hands and go, I'm incompatible with this law. Like, it's not going to work. And so Jesus fulfilled the law. Which I would tell you at that moment, that moment of desperation, guess what? We didn't get done again today. At that moment of desperate reality, where you realize that you weren't made for this and you'll never fulfill its standard. As a matter of fact, it was made for you to condemn you at that moment and only at that moment will you see the glory of the gospel of the kingdom and the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ as beautifully as it actually is you've got to see it first This is the righteousness of God come into the creation. Here is the Son of God come flesh. The question and the answer. The impossible statute and the propitiation that supplies for it. Man, people say, in what way did Jesus fulfill the law? Man, Jesus fulfilled all of it. Him and the Father are one. You know, kind of the opposite of kind of the opposite of of what James said about if you break one statute, you've broke them all. Concerning Jesus in the book of Hebrews, it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. In every respect, he was tempted as we are. Not not as an individual man is, but in every respect, he was tempted as we are. In every respect, he was tempted as the Hebrews are. In every respect, he is tempted as mankind is, and yet he is without sin. He fulfilled all the law, which at the end of his gospel brings John to say this in chapter 21. Now, there are so many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. Nailed it. You and I are incompatible with the law. The law is compatible with us, man. It'll show you what you are. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Only Christ. Only Christ is compatible. Only He is fit. And it's because the law is the picture of the Father's righteousness and the Son is in the Father are one. 
The most glorious way that Jesus fulfilled the law was in propitiation. Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats and calves and the blood of fallen men is insufficient to pay the debt that is at hand. But the blood of Jesus Christ is infinitely perfect. It's perfect. Which is why out of that background of hopeless desperation that the law produces in men that work their fingers till they bleed in trying to fulfill it only to realize they can't, against that background comes Paul. And if anybody understands it, he does. Saying that now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And it's a manifesting that this time will not manifest itself in a way that brings condemnation, but will manifest itself in a way that brings peace. It has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They're just bearing witness to it in a very different way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a payment in full by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness at the present because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And the law was given for the sake of the righteousness of God. That it might be displayed for men that it was designed for but they were never going to be compatible with in order that Jesus Christ could fulfill it to the satisfaction of all. Man, if that doesn't make you want to come to Christ, then I can't possibly think of what would. (laughs) Man, you can come right where you sit today. I pray that you do. I pray that we who have will hold the law of the righteousness of God in the esteem that it deserves. For if it hadn't been for the law, we would have never even known that we needed him. And man, we do. Let's pray.